Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey there, what's up? How you doing? You're listening to episode number 60, and my guest this week is Ari Pine. Ari has been trading for many, many years. I'm not sure on the exact number, but during this time, he's filled a whole range of roles and positions. Some of those include working at JP Morgan, developing risk management software, trading for a long volatility hedge fund, making markets in gold and silver options, and even giving presentations to the Chinese stock exchange. But moving forward to current times, Ari is now in charge of building out a quantitative trading group, approaching the markets from a scientific perspective. Our conversation includes all of the above, plus some really valuable info about positive expectations, the law of large numbers, and process over outcome. Now, guys, I just want to point out to you quickly, the trading group Ari is involved with, Tradeco Global, is a subsidiary of Trading Technologies. Now, even though TT were a recent sponsor of this podcast, this interview is completely separate from our sponsorship arrangement. So just so you know, I was not paid to do this interview. It was totally organic. All right. I think that's all for now. You're listening to the Chat with Traders podcast. Here's my interview with Ari Pine. Hey Ari, what's up, man? How you doing? Uh, good evening. Uh, very nice to talk with you. Thank you very much for uh, having a talk with me. I, you're putting me in some pretty good company. <laughs> no trouble, man. Now you're in New York. How is everything there? Is it all back to normal after the huge amounts of snow that came through the city? <laughs> you know, there's got to be people that are in the Midwest that just look at us like what a bunch of whiny kids um, because I mean it was a pretty good dump we had 20 inches but you would you'd barely know it now um, we had quite a few warm days and much of it is gone okay okay but yeah because it was <laughs> well it's all over the news here well not all over the news it wasn't breaking news but it was um it was on pretty much every night for um about a week so <laughs> so no. you're saying you have no real news <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much pretty much but as expected so anyway ari thank you very much for coming on the podcast let's start with the first question i have for you and that is 
What was your very first involvement with markets and trading? So when I was in college, I was very fortunate. Um, I was in engineering school uh, out on the West Coast, and I'd been looking at uh, computer and electrical engineering, and somehow I stumbled upon um, neural networks. And, and now I think there's uh, basically, they call it deep learning now. Um, but at the time, it was uh, pretty exciting. There were some big hitters in the field uh, where I was. And I got pretty excited about it. And another um, uh, student and myself started to try to take a look at using neural networks to look at stock prices. And stock prices were really the only exposure that I had at that point. I didn't really know um, really anything else or really had a sophisticated idea about either economics or um, trading or, or really even stocks. But beyond that, nothing. And I was also fortunate to get recruited uh, to J.P. Morgan uh, right from school, uh, which I thought might be fun, even though I was going to leave uh, the California coast. Um, but I figured maybe going to Manhattan for a year wouldn't be so bad. Um, so when I got to Morgan, um, I thought that, or I should say, I didn't even know what a bond was. I mean, that, that's how little I knew at the time that I came into New York and into Wall Street is I really knew so little. And fortunately, they had a very good training program. And the moment I walked in, I remember it was Jeremy Siegel um, showing up with some slides from the Bloomberg uh, bond quote. And something in my head clicked. And I said, right at that moment, this is really what I want to do. I just loved it. I wanted to be involved with it. And it was really right from that get-go right there. Uh, and so that's kind of where I started. I, I began actually in a technology group um, and found that wasn't the path that I wanted to go down. So I requested to move over to the fixed income floor. Um, and this was uh, quite a bit of time ago. This was 92. And um, so fixed income was at that time was huge. It had just come off the time when uh, if, if you have listeners out there that remember the Michael Lewis book, Liar's Poker, this was really just after that. And it was kind of funny to put it all in perspective because it had quite a bit of reality of how things um, really like people's attitudes at that time. Um, so I ended up going to the fixed income floor right as equities were about to eclipse fixed income as the, the leading product of the time. But that, that was basically my start. Okay, very good. So I believe before you went to fixed income um, trading, you were also had another position uh, before that at JP Morgan. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's kind of a... <laughs> Probably a, a far too familiar refrain from either Wall Street or just big companies in general. Um, so as I said, I, I had a lot of experience um, or a reasonable amount of experience in neural networks. I was literally writing software for some Intel chips that were supposed to be um, analog neural network chips, which is getting a little deep into it. But the point being that I had a pretty decent knowledge of uh, this field um, by the standards of the day. Um, and I came to 
Morgan into this advanced technology research group, which was supposed to look for new and exciting technologies and see what could be applicable at the bank, which is really quite a good idea um, you know, when you're talking about a bank like J.P. Morgan or one of the big banks, um, you know, it's kind of a nice, it's basically sort of an incubator kind of situation. Well, at the time that I was there, they had a neural network group, but the irony was none of them had any background in neural networks other than what the software vendors had told them about neural networks themselves. Um, and, you know, in typical sort of corporate fashion, here I was on the other side of the fence and nobody really wanted anything to do with me as far as neural networks went. And I, I guess ultimately that sort of fizzled out um, on their side. Um, on my end, I was actually kind of fortunate because they had me working on data visualization, which I think is something in the way that we looked at it at the time um, is sort of underappreciated, uh, I think. And it's something... It kind of gave me at that time both the data visualization and my original interest in neural networks had, I'd always wanted to combine uh, that technology viewpoint into a proprietary trading framework. But what happened in my trading career was both at Morgan and then when I went on to the exchange floors, I really spent much of the time making markets, which didn't really lend itself to doing that sort of research in either neural networks or data visualization or just, um, I guess, really hardcore data analysis at the time. Okay, so let's just take a second um, to explain what are neural networks, just for those who are unfamiliar. Well, basically, I mean, this is, um, I guess this is pretty um, good timing um, I don't know whether your readers are aware of um, a pioneer in the field, a gentleman named Marvin Minsky, who happened to have passed away five days ago. Um, and there's um, some very nice things um, put up in his memory that are on the web that I was just reading the other day. Um, but basically, the idea behind a neural network in a very simple, um, high-scale view is that it looks to replicate the way that the mind works. Uh, in other words, it tries to create very simple parallels to a neuron and then basically connect them in, in a myriad of ways to um, mimic the connections in the brain. And then it looks to, you train the neural network, you basically, rather than say these are the um, this is how it should all work. You have the neural network, quote unquote, learn by experience. In other words, you keep showing it new data and you tell it what it should learn from it. And there's an algorithm that feeds back into it and, and has it optimize the weights. From an analysis perspective, it is essentially an incremental regression. You know, so if, if you're familiar with regression analysis and statistics, rather than doing everything all at once and getting your numbers in the neural network, essentially what's happening is you're going incrementally uh, and it can look at very complex nonlinear relationships as well. 
Okay, so it's essentially machine learning. Is that another word for it or are they two different things? Yeah, that's the popular term for it now. Yeah, I probably should have brought that up when you first mentioned it. But yes, that's exactly right. So, yeah. Excellent. Okay. All right, Ari, well, let's continue moving forward and jump back to uh, your time on the floor of the exchange. So you mentioned that you were trading uh, fixed income. Were there any other products you were also trading? And what was your experience like just in general while trading on the floor? When I, the, my first experience trading on the floor was going out to San Francisco onto the Pacific Exchange where I traded stock options. Um, and, you know, that, that's another uh, situation where I really, even when I was at JP Morgan, I kind of knew that, you know, I would talk to the CME to hedge in Euro dollar futures uh, at times, but I didn't really didn't hit me that there were other people on the other end making markets and what their lives might be like. Um, and so I didn't really get a sense of that until I went out to the Pacific Exchange. And, you know, it's a very, you know, different world. The, the people that you meet on the floor are, you know, they often get a bad rap. Um, and, and I happen to go when, uh, you know, in the 90s when the stock market was going crazy, really a good time where there were a lot of traders that didn't really necessarily know as much about what they were doing as maybe you'd expect. Um, but by and large, these were, you know, very bright people who either weren't, you know, looking or fit for your traditional suit and tie corporate kind of jobs. And um, but they were very bright and usually quite creative and uh, can be quite aggressive at times. And, and that's one of the things from the exchange floor that, um, you know, makes it that it's not for everybody. It's a very, very aggressive place, even when people are, you know, decent people. Okay, Ari, so how long were you on the floor trading or making markets? Um, and then what led to your decision to leave? So I, I spent about three years on the exchange floor in, on the Pacific Exchange, and I was getting to the point. What I'd actually done um, was every evening I would come home and I would practice, uh, in a sense. I, would, I created these sheets where I would write down all of the relevant market data um, from the day in the sense that I would write down all the closing straddles and strangles um, and relevant sort of spreads to me as an options trader. And what that would end up doing um, would have me <laughs> um, practice my fraction adding and subtracting. Um, that sounds like an odd thing to want to practice as a trader, but it turned out that um, despite my years of school, um, hopefully some trading acumen, and overall trading experience, what really could pay the bills was if you could add and subtract fractions really quickly. Um, and, and I was very fortunate that I was able to do that pretty quickly. Um, but I would take notes and I would try to keep track of, you know, how straddles traded. And I would at times go back and refer to them. So I would use this um, to look at when earnings would come up in, say, Microsoft, which I had traded for a while, and I would look at the range of the straddle 
which, which would be the um, closest, the, the option struck closest to the current trading price of Microsoft and look at how low it got and look for an opportunity potentially uh, to buy into the straddle or sell the straddle if it got too rich um, and use this as a basis for historical data analysis. And this was all done in writing. And so come around 1999, um, which at that time was when the exchanges um, started to list everybody else's products. So I need to explain that a little bit. But way back in the day, there were four options exchanges in the US. And each of those exchanges had their own products. If you wanted to trade Microsoft options, you only could go to the Pacific Exchange. Likewise, if you wanted to trade IBM options, those only traded at the CBOE. Well, what happened in 99 was everybody started listing everybody else's options. And this, unsurprisingly, um, was clearly having an impact on trader margins. At that time, I got more interested in using this historical data. And along with a friend of mine, what we did was we started collecting the data. We formed our own company, started collecting this data, putting it into a database, and calculating all of the implied volatilities on the 3,500-odd U.S. stocks that were optionable, that had options that traded. Um, now, if that might seem like something that's pretty common now, um, there are sites like iVolatility and Option Metrics and so on, but at the time that we were doing it, nobody else was, at least not for external consumption. So uh, I know that at least one or two of the banks had exactly this sort of thing. I know that others did not, too, um, but it was not publicly available. And so we decided that we were going to focus our effort on that, partially because we thought that was a way for us to find edge in our trading, but it was also 1999, and for those of you old enough to remember, that was the dot-com boom, and we happened to be in San Francisco. And so our thinking went along the lines of, if some guy with a sock puppet can get a valuation of hundreds of millions of dollars, well, we've got a real product. Um, it just turned out that people were more interested in the not-so-real products versus the sort of practical down-to-earth and potentially more niche products like option volatilities. So um, that's, that's where, where he and I went next. Um, and unfortunately, uh, our timing was fairly poor as soon after that um, – Soon after the dot-com boom came the dot-com bust, and we were pretty squarely in the timing of the dot-com bust. Um, so that didn't really work out, but what did end up working out is that one of the uh, hedge funds that were using our tool called me up and said, listen, we really wish you the best. We hope you make billions on what you're doing. If it doesn't work out, we'd love to have you over here to trade uh, in our long volatility fund. And at that time, uh, which was 2001-ish, um, my wife was pregnant with our first child. We wanted to get back to the East Coast, and this sort of fit everything 
along with the whole not making money thing. So it, it seemed like a pretty reasonable decision. And so we moved back to the East Coast and I was fortunate enough to join up with a couple of extremely bright and very down to earth uh, traders uh, in unsurprisingly Greenwich, Connecticut. Okay. Okay. So what were some of the things that you picked up from those two, uh, those two long-time traders that you'd been uh, put with? Quite a few things. Uh, one of which is integrity. Um, and I think that's my saying that would make them both quite proud. They're both very, very bright guys. A couple of Greek guys. Um, I really think the world of them. Um, and so I started learning how to think about taking proprietary positions rather than merely being a market maker. So you start, so this was a long volatility hedge fund, meaning that they invested in long option positions. So they would own options rather than either doing some long and some short or doing uh, short options or sort of picking. They were, they were meant to be at that time before the VIX was tradable, I might add, um, they were looking to fill that role. So they viewed themselves as something that you could put in as part of your portfolio um, and they would have a smart investment into options and it would work well with the rest of your portfolio. Um, so you start at that point, starting to you start thinking about what causes volatility, about which positions should you get based on a variety of inputs. Um, so you may not always choose necessarily the one with the lowest implied volatility, but there are multiple factors when you're trading options. It's one of the, um, one of the things that makes options trading so interesting and yet so challenging. Um, and just overall, um, the difference between making money for yourself and doing the best you can for your investors. And these two gentlemen um, really focused on trying to deliver the best for their investors. So you'd think that a couple of guys that had graduated also from different Wall Street banks, so they had, they had come from a couple of other top tier banks, um, that they might be interested in structured products, complex derivatives, and so on. And they knew that that sort of structure was not generally accretive to their investors, that it tended to benefit the sell side or the professional traders that were selling it. And so they avoided that um, and they went out of their way to do so, even though that probably would have made them more popular um, with the banks uh, and with other order flow providers. Um, we also happened to share a building with um, the Bayou Fund. And you probably have no recollection of the Bayou Fund, but what would happen is there was this hedge fund uh, that was located in the same building, more or less, and they would come in, their accountant was downstairs, and every month there would be this huge argument over how to mark stuff to market. And I didn't really pay much attention to it until one day that um, one of the two partners said to me, he said, there's something wrong. This shouldn't be so difficult to figure out how to mark to market things. 
If this is what's going on, he's like, something's not right. I thought that was really significant um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, it means essentially what you might call, um, if you ever listen to, let's say, Strat 4, is they'll talk about situational awareness. In other words, paying attention to what's going on around you and trying to find those things that just don't seem right. And so I started to pick up on that and I started to think that that was a deficiency that I really needed to work on in my own both life and trading um, is to start catching those things that don't make sense. Um, so I thought that was very significant in and of itself. It also turned out that he was absolutely right. And in about a few months afterwards, um, if you go look up Bayou Fund, these guys had been cooking the books. They had been, you know, it was basically one of the, the first Ponzi schemes that had sort of, not first, but around that time that it started to unravel. Um, and it ended up a few of them went to jail. Um, so I was... That, that had a big impact, uh, at least intellectually, on me, and I have not, obviously, forgotten that. Interesting, interesting. Okay. So, you, you mentioned there, there was, obviously, a big argument every month about how to mark to market. What's that referring to? So, most of your listeners are probably familiar with the listed markets. And by listed markets, that means listed on an exchange. So, if you're trading... Um, let's say um, one, you know, Aussie stocks. Um, I'm probably going to embarrass myself by thinking I'm going to name a uh, an Aussie stock, and it won't be. But I'm thinking Freeport McMoran. Is that right? Uh, not sure. Let's just say Apple. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So let's say you're trading Apple. Um, when you're trading Apple, you know exactly where it's trading. You can see it. It's got a very tight bid ask spread. There's a settlement price that's given by the exchange and generally agreed upon, and there's really no discussion on it. If, if you have your statement from your broker, it says Apple settled at $97.27. It's that simple. However, if you're trading something that trades OTC, something that might have bid, you know, a wide bid-ask spread, that is a convertible bond, um, that may not trade that frequently. Um, generally, what's done is people construct a model and try to value it. Now, if you are what um, one of my later partners would say, if you invested in intellectual honesty, you will tend to mark that conservatively um, because you will naturally assume that if you're able to buy at a certain price, there's a reason why, or, or sell, there's a reason why. Um, namely, that somebody probably knows more than you. But nevertheless, these things are not very liquid, so you have to come up with some price. What they would do, in, even though their securities ended up going further and further underwater or going against them, they'd be losing money, they would try to mark them as much as they could to show that they were making money and, and trying to figure out what assumptions that you put on your modeling in order to price these um, is where the arguments would come in. Um, and so there was a level of discomfort between the accountant 
who had to file the documents, meaning the end of month or end of quarter statements that would go out to investors and the um, partners of the fund that were looking to show results as good as possible to continue money coming into the fund. So I don't know the exact details, but the point being is that if you're comfortable with your trading, you shouldn't worry about where things are settling or where the mark to market is, what price you put on it. You should be comfortable with the value and how it's going to turn out over time. Did that help? Yeah. So what are the what are these unlisted products or securities that you're referring to though? Are they bonds or are they something else? I don't know the particulars uh, of what they were looking at, but uh, in general, you would you would it might be something like a, an exotic derivative. Um, it could be a convertible bond that doesn't trade very frequently, or some sort of distressed uh, loan or note. Um, or some other type of uh, OTC option that might not have transacted on an exchange or might be on a product that does not trade on an exchange. So if you could imagine that there might be an option um, that is on a bond that doesn't trade very frequently, you can imagine that the option itself would have quite a bit of leeway as to where it should be valued. So that's where some of the difficulties in actually coming up, the legitimate difficulties of coming up with a price uh, that should be on the securities that you have in one's portfolio. Um, so that's where it comes about. Um, it's really anything that isn't on an exchange. Um, you know, the things that most of your listeners are familiar with, stocks, listed options, futures, these are all exchange listed. You can see right where the, where the pricing is. Um, there are definitely some futures products for which there might be a wide market. They might have um, perhaps a 10-year crude future. That might not have, you know, that might move around quite a bit on their statement, but it's still relatively well known where a fair value is. There might be an OTC, uh, um, an OTC forward, which is the equivalent of a future on some obscure um, variant of crude oil from a particular area of the United States. And for that, it's very difficult to value. So it really can be any sort of product. Got it, got it, okay. So I'm not sure if this was your next move uh, directly from the hedge fund, but I understand that you spent some time in China. What was it that led you over there? Well, I had left just by way of creating a segue, I had left the uh, hedge fund in 2003 to go to the commodity exchange, which is where gold and silver futures and options are traded, um, amongst other things. But that was what I, what I was interested in. And I traded there for about nine years um, until about 2012, till the end of 2012, um, when I just felt as though uh, it was time to move on. Um, I had left and I'd actually decided that I wanted to leave trading and had become interested in writing some internet privacy software when my friend from the COMEX, uh, who I had traded 
gold options with for quite a few years, reached out to me, said that he had just returned from China and explained that in China, there were no options. I mean, literally no options. And he said that they were going to be launched uh, sometime in 2015 and that he was trying to negotiate um, to give a seminar to the Shanghai Futures Exchange. Would I be interested? Well, you know, that seemed like an opportunity not to miss, even if the only outcome was getting a trip to China uh, and, and seeing what this incredible country and what's going on in its financial markets was really all about. So I was extremely excited about that. Um, and it, um, you know, blossomed into quite a bit of travel. And it was really been very good for me overall. Sure. Okay. So, so what were you doing there? You were hosting a few uh, seminars explaining options to um, traders in China? Well, we were very, what the Shanghai Futures Exchange does is they have um, periodic uh, seminars for their members um, where their members can come and learn about different things, just like you'd imagine here in the United States, whether it might be new regulations or in this case, it was about options. So we were very honored um, to give a talk. Um, it was actually a three-day seminar on options trading, options risk management, and how to hedge using the options market. And uh, I think it was pretty well received. Uh, and it was, you know, turned out to be quite a bit more work <laughs> than I had anticipated originally. Um, but it um, was very interesting and the Chinese futures uh, companies were extremely interested to get as much knowledge about options trading um, from what they perceived to be the experts from the United States, which ostensibly was myself and my partner, Paul. Right. Okay. Very cool. Well, let's bring things up to speed now. So, You've experienced a lot, Ari. You've clearly had many different roles over the years. Tell us about what you're doing these days. Well, part of what came as the outcome of going to China um, was that uh, the good people at Trading Technologies, um, a couple of which I knew, reached out to me and said, hey, I know you're busy with this stuff in China. But we have this trading group and we're trying to um, rebuild it. Would you have any interest in getting involved? And so it turned out to be a really nice opportunity. Um, I hope they feel the same way. Um, but uh, it's been very good for me. Um, what we work on in the, in the, I run a subsidiary of TT, so it's not, TT per se, but I run a company called Tradeco Global. And at Tradeco Global, what I am building is a quantitative trading group. Um, and by quantitative, I don't necessarily mean fully automated or strictly systematic, but really disciplined uh, and rigorous so that we're going to use all of the tools that are available to us uh, in terms of data, data analysis, um, I'd like to get involved in machine learning, but we haven't done that yet. Uh, and to approach the market from 
I guess you would call it a scientific perspective, that we're going to try to find regularities, try to make intelligent decisions, and just really be very rigorous about what we do. Okay. And what's the size of that group? Just to give us a bit more context about what you're working on. Well, in the past, it had been quite big um, because it was very oriented around uh, having each person as their own business. I like having a smaller group. I like to have tight-knit and very research-focused. So we are a group of five and soon to be six once um, my new hire comes on board, hopefully this month. So we're not a very large group. Um, but we're kind of divided between um, a couple of people that are dedicated toward research, a couple of people that are dedicated towards execution. Um, the new guy is going to be primarily developer, you know, so programming strength. And then my role is to synthesize it all together and try to take advantage of the experience that I do have to try to make to guide things intelligently um, and to blend it all together. Um, So that's really what we're trying to do. Okay, excellent. Now, in the past, um, you know, we've spoken before this call, you've described this group as having an emphasis on a top-down and a bottom-up approach. Uh, Could you share a little more insight on what you mean by this? Yeah, so thanks for bringing it up because I – I think that is um, important um, for our trading group um, because we do have experience on the trading side, um, which I would consider sort of the bottom up, right? We are watching the markets. We are you know, trying to be experts in what we do, in how our strategies are working, what potential regularities that work or don't work. Um, And most importantly, regardless of who's coming up with it, I always want to make sure that everybody is trying to ask good questions about what's going on. So that actually links back to that whole situational awareness um, that I started learning uh, when I was at Beaver Creek, which is the hedge fund then. Um, So that's the bottom up. The person who's executing that's at the, the low level of the market and is making the observations and sees what's going on. So I would like them to come and ask good questions that as a group, we're going to try to answer probably from the research side. So we'll go back and say, oh, I noticed this. Does this actually hold up over time? Okay, so now we go research that. That's bottom up. Top down to me is We think that there might be an opportunity in X. Okay, now we research it. We come up with something that you might think of as being somewhat academic. We might even take an academic paper and want to pursue it, right? That's from the top down. So then we come up and we sort of dictate that, hey, we should do the following strategy. This is what we're looking at. These are the instruments. This is how we should trade it. But ultimately, neither one of them is going to be the best route without the other. You know, an observation needs the disciplined research as the follow-up, and the research needs the feedback from the actual execution 
to make it work properly and to turn what looks like a regularity into a profit. Okay, excellent. Yeah, and I think we might speak more about that that process uh, side of things in, in just a moment. Um, I would like to ask you that you mentioned uh, with the group, it's not a purely automated or systematic um, approach to markets. So what aspects are discretionary and what aspects um, will be automated to some extent? That depends on the situation, um, you know, and that's a little bit of human judgment as we go along. So there may be some strategies that we run that might be fully automated. Um, And it also depends if you think about the different products that are out there. If you're trading something that is very liquid, such as, uh, you know, 10-year note futures or your dollar futures, you know, that's something that probably can be very automated, that you found some, you know, hopefully you found some real regularity, you found a real edge and you want to pursue it, it's relatively easy because of the liquidity in these products to execute, to uh, provide stop losses and so on. And the execution part of it, because bid ask spreads are so tight or you can get, you can buy on the bid or sell on the offer at times, it means that the value added by Uh, the trader or the execution person, there isn't that much added. Uh, As compared with, say, a far less liquid future, um, on the extreme might be that you've come up with a model for how milk futures should trade, right? And there, it's probably somewhere where a human being is going to have far more to add. Um, Probably a better example might be in options. Um, Some of my friends that are still in the Pacific Exchange, they don't go compete so much, uh, at least in a market-making sense, in Cisco options, which are super, super liquid, or Apple options, right? Apple options might be better because the dollar prices are large. But overall, there may not be that edge for a human being to go from eye to hand or, you know, to not intervene at some point, right? It may make sense to be very automated in what you're doing. On the other hand, if you're trading a deal stock or a biotech stock, these are things where there's either bipolar output, um, you know, if it's, um, earnings coming up or an FDA approval, meaning a regulatory approval for the for a drug that might be coming up or an approval for a mergers, merger or acquisition. These are things that machines don't really do well. They can't calc, you know, deal with some of these externalities or irregularities. So I view each particular situation as being somewhere on a continuum between where is it a um, algorithmic edge and where is it a more creative edge. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. 
not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Now, there's a few areas I'd like to explore a little more with you. Uh, those being probabilities and process, uh, trade management, and also some more about options. But let's start with probabilities and process. So one of the things you've expressed to me in past conversations is the process is more important than the outcome. Would you mind elaborating on this and maybe explaining why you feel that way? Yeah, this is one of those things that... um you know, if you really do believe in process over outcome, you can feel like uh, a long-suffering uh, person <laughs> trying to tilt at windmills. Um, most people will judge decisions um, based on the outcome. In other words, um, actually, there was um, – I was watching – I don't know if you follow – hockey or not, but there was the NHL All-Star Game on earlier, and they were talking about a player, Ryan McDonough, who now plays for the Rangers, and and I'm going to mangle part of this story because I don't really, I like watching hockey, but I don't follow it to that extreme. Um, and they said, oh, the, and you know what, I even forgot what team traded him, I think it was Buffalo. The point being is some team traded him, he's a great defenseman, and oh, you know, oh no, it was Montreal. He said, oh, Montreal will look at that as the worst trade. Yeah, but you can't judge it based on the outcome. Nobody knew at the time. If they knew at the time that Ryan McDonough was going to be one of the great defensemen in the league, of course it would be a bad decision. But it wasn't clear at that point that he was. And so you have to make your evaluate your decision-making process based on how you made your decision, not on the outcome. Because if you think about it, you're either going to, you're going to end up with a box. And unfortunately, we don't have video here. And there's a, uh, Michael Mabasin has written a great book um, called More Than You Know. And he's used this grid from, I think, somebody else. But the basic idea is that you are either going to have a good decision or a poor decision. And then if you think about it as being a grid, then there's also going to be a good outcome or a bad outcome. So you can ha make a good decision and have a good outcome. And so they call that um, earned reward, right? You, you, you made the, a good decision and you got a good outcome, deserved reward. Um, and you can also think that you can make a good decision, that you've got a 90% chance of making a ton of dough and, and a 10% chance of losing a little bit, and you can still lose a little bit. Okay, that's just the way that it goes. Um, and I think we've all had trades where we felt that we've made either a good or a bad decision and had an outcome, either good or bad, along with it. Um, and if you want, I can go into an illustration of two trades I happened to do at the same time where I felt like one was a good decision, one was a bad decision, and the outcomes were sort of independent of that. 
Um, and, and that's really how you have to look at it, that there's a good way to make a decision and a bad way, and the outcomes are what they are. But you need to keep focus on making good decisions, and hopefully over time, the law, the, the, the law of large numbers will work in your way, in your favor, I should say. Yeah, that's a, that's a really cool analogy, and I think it actually helps to make that that saying quite a lot clearer. Because I mean, we do often hear the process is more important than the outcome, but you know, sometimes we can really question, really just question that. Um, so yeah, I think that actually made it a little clearer. So no, that was good. Thank you very much. Now, would you be able to share an outline of the process your group actually goes through to discovering potential trading ideas? Like from the point where you mentioned earlier that someone might ask, you know, a good question, how do you go about finding the answer to that? What's your, what's your process for that? Well, part of the idea of having a good question is that you phrase it in such a way that you have a shot at getting an answer. Right, your question can't be, um, "How do I make more money?" Right, that's very vague. You know, it might be that I notice that um, the market is four times more volatile on a non-farm payroll day than it is otherwise. Can I confirm that? How consistent is that? Um, and let's investigate that further. Um, or you might, and, and I don't know whether this is true or not, but you might say um, the first direction I've noticed ad hoc, you know, from watching stuff, it seems to me, which by the way, I should say that more likely than not, um, your observations due to behavioral biases, right? There's plenty to read about that, but your anecdotal may not be right which is why you have to go and verify it afterwards. But let's say that you've looked at the past few non-farm payroll numbers and you say the first move in tenure notes right afterwards, you want to fade. In other words, take the other side of it rises. You want to sell it right away because eventually like after, after a few minutes, it's going to come back hard the other way, whether it's, you know, First it goes up, then you want to sell it, or first it goes down and you want to buy it. So then you'd go back and you want to go find the data and verify whether in fact, one, does that in fact occur? Is this a real um, regularity? Is it a real observable fact? And if so, what can I say about it? Um, and by what can I say about it is what is the magnitude? Um, you know, what are all of the factors? Think about all of the factors that might go into a trade. Do I put in a stop loss? Well, how does that figure into analysis? Well, what is the typical size? May, does the size of the move after, the, after a number impact how it might react after? So you continually, even when you're doing the research, you should be paying attention and asking questions um, and, you know, taking very careful notes. It's really um, one of the important aspects of trading is being organized and, um, you know, t dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's. It's not really terribly glamorous. Um, it just may seem that way sometimes because you'll see some people who, you know, 
for some period of time just seem to be on top of it. But my experience is that the successful traders in terms of risk-adjusted returns are the grinders. Um, now, that might be because of my particular experience in making markets, um, but I tend to think that even in the um, sort of Stanley Druckenmiller crowd, um, and not that I have personal experience speaking with him or um, of the heavy hitters, but I would think that they spend a lot of time doing research. And if you listen to um, Warren Buffett um, or Charlie Munger, uh, what they say, um, they talk about reading an awful lot, um, spending five to eight hours a day reading, which you know, in, in the case of a quantitative trader might not necessarily be the same reading, but it might be data analysis, or it might be in fact taking, you know, some course online to try and learn something else, or even, you know, taking some sort of just learning something about a different field that might give you some insight about slicing data in a slightly different way. Yeah. Uh, you hit on a lot of really valuable points there. I like that answer. So I think this probably leads on from the outcome. So again, referring to something you mentioned to me off air, you were talking about how you aim to be in a position of positive expectation. What does a positive expectation look like and how would someone know if they have one? I guess we can start with the definition of a positive expectation. Um, and, and again, I happen to be reading um, – Michael, and I'm probably mangling his name, so apologies to him because he's, he's done a great job um, and I think quite highly of him. Michael Maubasin, um, the book is More Than You Know, and I'm not trying to plug his book. It just happens that I'm reading it. And he talks a lot about how great investors focus on positive expectations. Um, and a positive expectation means that you're not merely looking at either the probability of gain or merely the magnitude of gain. It's that you take the probability of gain and you multiply that times the magnitude of the gain, gain and you do the same um, for the probability of loss and the projected um, magnitude of loss. And when you take the probability weighted gain less the probability weighted loss, if that number is positive, that's a positive expectation. In other words, based on the probabilities as I see them right now, there's positive expectation of a profit. Okay? Now, of course, the natural question is, yeah, but I don't know any of those numbers. <laughs> and that's absolutely the case. We don't. So how do we go back and take a look at that? Well, we can start making pretty good guesses based on some historical either rules of thumb. So if you're investing in credit, maybe you have a pretty good idea of if something goes into bankruptcy, uh, if, sorry, if a company goes into bankruptcy, that a certain type of payout can be, um, can be thought of as being expected. Um, and then you can figure out what the magnitude will be, if it's, which is fairly easy if it's a note, a meaning, a, a meaning debt, 
um, because, you know, it's either going to be anywhere from zero to 100. Um, on the other hand, it's much harder to figure out what your magnitude of loss might be in a 15-minute period for gold futures. Um, that's rather difficult. Um, but what you can do is you can make certain guesses based on, and, and this is really where your research comes into play, is that you're going to make guesses based on your research and then you need to take into account that you're not always going to be correct, right? There's uncertainty in everything that you're doing and that uncertainty may play in your direction or against you. Um, often it tends to be against you because there's what is called adverse selection, but that's a different topic. Um, so you basically, you do the best you can and you try to have as many, like if you have uh, a situation where you have a positive expectation, you don't want to bet just once, right? If, if you're the house at the blackjack table and you know that you have a 2% edge on your players coming in, you don't want to have just one player betting large amounts. You want lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of betting going on in small amounts so that you can reap that 2% on average. That's what you want. And that's what I want when I'm trading. I want to find these positive expectations game, games. I want to bet relatively small amounts each time. And I want to do it as many, 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 many times as I can. I want to go continually having people coming into my casino. And, you know, that is kind of how I look at the world, right? So, and it doesn't have to necessarily be as a market maker, although it's relatively easy to understand where a market maker obtains his edge. That's relatively well understood. Um, as a proprietary trader, it's much more difficult to estimate probabilities on what the FDA might do or what other investors might do after an earnings release, um, even if you know what the earnings are going to be for a particular company. So I was just going to add on to that. I mean, would you say it was trading options and your experience of making markets that actually got you into the habit of thinking this way and thinking in terms of probabilities? Absolutely. That's one, I don't think it's an accident that um, Nassim Taleb um, is the author of The Black Swan. He's an options trader by training. And I think that, quite frankly, um, if you have that experience, either as a poker player um, or some other probability business, um, that it is extremely helpful in the way that you look at all aspects of your life and in looking at the world. Um, so yeah, I think that being an options trader has, have, has had a very profound effect on me. Um, I'd also say having a relatively long career has also done that. Um, we, when we gave that um, talk to the Shanghai Futures Exchange, my partner said that one of his favorite slides was how um, if, if you look at the st standard deviation, right, you know, people say, oh, this was a one in a thousand year event. Um, you know, they said, you know, I'm sure you heard plenty of that coming out of 2008. We couldn't predict it. Well, if you go through and look 
there's about a one in 1,000 year event that occurs in finance like every year or so. <laughs> so it's not really that credible um, to think in those terms. And obviously, there's more to it than it merely being a one in 1,000 um, year event. Um, there are fat tails um, in finance. And actually, I remember reading very distinctly um, in 1990, after 1998 and long-term capital blew up, um, that I think it was Lawrence Hillebrand was quoted as saying, trading in finance is not, you know, and selling options is not the same as selling insurance. The fact that you've written a lot of hurricane insurance does not impact the likelihood of a hurricane reaching ground. On the other hand, the fact that you've got a very large position in finance does impact your probability of gain or loss, right? Which is, I guess, linking back to a Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is to say that the moment you're observing it or the moment that you're part of it, it changes the actual it. Yeah, and you mentioned Nassim Taleb in there, and that's actually the third time his name's come up on the podcast. So I would, I'm actually thinking he might make a, a good guest, um, and I might actually try and get him on. I haven't read The Black Swan or um, what's his other one, Anti Fragile. I haven't read those books, but um, I'm actually very keen to. So uh, yeah, he might be someone I reach out to in the future. But let's move on to the more of the trade management aspect. Share with us your role for half, that your role of half and how it's been helpful to you. Yeah, I don't think that I'm unique in that and it certainly isn't scientific. I would probably, I should probably be embarrassed by it, um, but I, it, because it's kind of simple and, and, you know, after all of my talk about rigor, my rule of half doesn't really sound that um, rigorous or disciplined um, or I should say rigorous. But what I found is that when I do have a position that makes me particularly uncomfortable, um, that ultimately we are just human beings. Um, and a certain amount of how we perform um, is impacted by our emotions. Um, and so what I found is that when I put on a position that even if I think is correct, I will find myself doubting it because the price action is is marking it against me, um, or I just feel very uncomfortable in some way, that I will begin by taking off half or some reasonable proportion of the trade so that I can feel as though I've done something about it, which I actually have. I've lessened the potential for loss, even though I've locked in some loss. But it makes me feel more comfortable and I can go back to doing what it is, is collecting those positive expectations. Because ultimately, that's what you, that is actually the biggest lesson that I learned from making markets is I'm in a positive expectation game. You can't put yourself in a situation to end that game. You, not every trade you're going to do or series of trades is going to work out, but you need to be in a position that you can get back to making those positive expectation trades. And 
So my rule of half is just a way of taming something that's going awry, making it more controllable, and allowing myself to feel more comfortable. And maybe, you know, now that I felt like I've done something about it, that I can think more clearly about the situation that I'm in and maybe even put it right back on. Okay. And even with the rule of half, I presume you still know where you are going to exit the full position if things go bad. <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes, uh, like in what we currently do, sometimes it's a question of, you know, just based on time, because that might be what our analysis is based on. You know, it is what it is. It's up or down. And, you know, we've done some analysis that's time-based. So just get the heck out. Um, now, when you're making markets, sometimes you don't have that luxury. Um, there, there is, um, where are you now, right? So you ask, what's your market in X? You give a market. They say, okay, sold all your size that you've got there. Where are you now? And so you're stuck in a position um, of obligation where if you wish to continue trading, you have to keep quoting. Um, and, and in those situations, it can get particularly scary because um, you're a leveraged player um, and you don't really know where your exit is going to be. So if I decide that I want to go long 10-year note futures and I'm a proprietary trader, I know that I can be limited to five lots or 50 lots or 500, whatever my limit is, because I can stop. But if I'm a 10-year note market maker, I don't know where I'm going to stop exactly. Now, it might be that the clearing firm will stop for me, but things can get pretty scary along the way. And I think that's a little bit underappreciated um, by the general public these days in many of the criticisms, but not all, of what people are vaguely calling, usually misunderstand the, with a misunderstanding towards HFT. So I kind of went all over the map there, but um, I just wanted to address a little bit that as a market maker, you don't always get to, get to choose what your position is. Right. Okay. Now, that's really good. Now, there's one last thing I'd like to ask you, and then we'll probably um, bring this to a close. But having spent pretty much your entire trading career in the professional arena, and you know, you've traded many products, you've traded many instruments that some, the retail will never touch. Is there anything that independent retail traders could adapt from the pros, which would be beneficial, whether that's just how they view markets, how they view risk, uh, anything along those lines? So I think that one of the biggest, um, I guess my perceptions of the difference between a professional you know, uh, trader, you know, from Wall Street is that you're really thinking as, as much as possible about those positive expectation trades. You're not, and, and you're in, and it's work. I mean, that's basically the difference is that most of the time on Wall Street, people become experts in a certain relatively narrow field and they parlay that expertise um, into their trading success. And I think one thing that also ought to be note, noted about even on the professional side is that for every trader that you do see that has been successful, there's, I'd say, at least a minimum of 99 
bodies behind him or her, I should say, behind him or her that never made it. So it's often thought that, oh, you know, trading is very glamorous and so on. But many people just don't make the cut either because they never are able to show enough to get into the seat in the first place um, or because they're unsuccessful at what they're doing, um, perhaps because of the difference between process and outcome, um, or it may be just that they don't have what it takes to become a trader. I think the fundamental attitude of a professional over a retail trader is that a retail, in my mind anyway, tends to look, and I am guilty of this as well, is tends to look at a single instrument and think that without a lot of research and effort that they're going to have some edge over what they're doing um, or that they have not put a sufficient amount of effort into verifying that they do in fact have an edge and what their edge is and how that translates into a positive expectation, let alone the probability distribution of that potential um, positive expectation. And I think that, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have two great kids and I've had my kids come up and say, oh, I want to learn how to trade. And so I sat my son down and I said, well, the first thing that a professional learns is arbitrage, right? We're looking at, can we make money by finding very alike things and, you know, take advantage of making money there. The idea, meaning really essentially that the idea isn't to come up with a super great idea or to have something that's very, quote, sexy to look at or explain or something that's very complicated. A professional trader is here to make money. That's it. If it's dumb and, you know, there's a, a very easy rote way of how to do it, then that's how you do it. it it's not, I'm going to, and, and you don't have to do it in big size. A lot of money has been made trading very modest contract amounts. So maybe that helps a little bit. Absolutely. I love that answer. And I think that, you know, really takes us out with a bang. So thank you very much, Ari. It's been awesome to have you on the podcast. Um before you go, can you share with listeners where they can go to find out more about you? I don't know if you're active on Twitter. I know you had a blog at one point. Um, is there anywhere listeners can go to, to reach you and, and find out more? Yeah, well, you can go to Trading Technologies um, and find my email there. It's pretty straightforward. It's my name and reach out to me. Um, and I guess, um, you know, I have a website, pinert.com, that I haven't really updated that much. And I'm hoping to become more active on TT's blog um, going forward. And uh, that's that could probably cover it. Yeah, no, that's excellent. All right. Well, I'll be sure to include uh, those links um, to your own blog as well in the show notes at chatwithtraders.com. So again, Ari, thank you very much for doing this. It's been awesome to get your insight and uh, let's talk again soon. You're very kind. Thank you. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. 
So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.